Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. In the wake of the tragic killing of George Floyd and others, Bishop talks about the social evil of racism in this episode, including church teaching and how his time as pastor of an inner city parish in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, gave him firsthand experience with practical ways to unite cultures. Then it's on to two recent Supreme Court decisions, one that redefined sex and the other on DACA. The show wraps up with St. John the Baptist, whose birthday we celebrate today. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our Bishop. Happy Solemnity of the Nativity of St. John the Baptist. Thank you. I'm impressed that you knew that, Kyle. St. John the Baptist gets two That's these right. days. Yeah. Do you remember what the other one is? It's the beheading. That's right. Oh. Yep. The beheading of John the Baptist. I think it's August 29th, but I'm like 90% sure. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Here, I have my calendar. Let me look. Just so everyone knows, June 24th is the nativity of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist gets two feasts, pretty Bir- unusual for birth a saint. Birthday and death day. That's right. I get birth into the world and then birth into heaven. Right. The right. dies natalis, the birth into heaven, which oh, yes. normally is the day we celebrate saints is usually, not always, but usually the day of their death. Mm -hmm. I don't know of any other saint where we celebrate the birth date except for Mary Hmm. on September 8th. But um, the Feast of the Passion of St. John the Baptist, which used to be called the Beheading of John the Baptist, is August 29th. Okay. Well, would you like to start us off in prayer? Yes, I thought I would do the prayer to overcome racism, which is uh, at the end of our U.S. Bishop's pastoral letter against racism that we uh, that we put out two years ago, and since there's a lot of discussion about uh, addressing racism in these days with all the things going on in our country, I thought that this prayer to the Blessed Mother that the bishops wrote in the pastoral letter would be appropriate today. Sure. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mary, friend and mother to all, through your Son, God has found a way to unite himself to every human being, called to be one people, sisters and brothers to each other. We ask for your help in calling on your Son, seeking forgiveness for the times when we have failed to love and respect one another. We ask for your help in obtaining from your Son the grace we need to overcome the evil of racism and to build a just society. We ask for your help in following your Son so that prejudice and animosity will no longer infect our minds or hearts, but will be replaced with a love that respects the dignity of each person. Mother of the Church, the Spirit of your Son, Jesus, warms our hearts. Pray for us. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for that prayer. And speaking of racism and the events that have happened lately, sometimes because of our recording schedule, we're not always able to do things timely. But on June 1st, you released a statement. Uh, but also, just recently, I, I noticed the, an article about a book that you're recommending our elementary schools oh, implement. Yeah. So maybe we can talk a little bit about racism and and how the church is reacting or has reacted throughout the years? Well, 
we could spend a whole hour easily on this topic, but I did um, issue a statement after the killing of George Floyd, and then there were the nationwide protests, and basically I reiterated what my brother U.S. bishops, what we all said, which was that we're heart brokenhearted and sickened and outraged mm -hmm. to watch another video of an African-American man being killed before our very eyes. You know, it was senseless, it was tragic, what happened in Minneapolis, and there are other situations, Ahm Ahmad Arbery, last February in Georgia, and just reminding us of that vile evil of racism still rears its ugly head, that it's been a pervasive social evil that we have to fight against and eradicate it. It is, really, it's intolerable. It's antithetical to our faith because we believe in the dignity of every human person mm -hmm. created in the image and likeness of God. So racism goes against a fundamental belief of the Christian faith and of Catholicism. The protests that broke out to, to uh, across the nation to rightly protest the killing of George Floyd and, and the injustices suffered by African Americans in our country, it was very sad that in some places, rioting and looting broke out because violence just causes further injustice. It doesn't sure. solve anything. It causes further harm. Racial justice is a, a, a very important need. I've, I've um, done a lot of reflecting with people the past month. People have asked me about um, some of the history, the Catholic Church, etc., that's why I said I could do a whole show on this, but it's very interesting when you look at, not just in our country, but even before our country was founded, this, this uh, institution of slavery. You know, we see Romans had slaves and goes back to ancient times, but the church, um, when we saw the, the, the slave trade in the 16th, 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, Europeans, and, and then in the New World, um, buying of slaves from Africa, the terrible, inhumane practice of, of slavery. A lot of people don't know that the popes uh, really condemned this, mm -hmm. condemned the slave trade. The Catholic Church really was, uh, on the universal side with the pope, ha uh, has been pretty consistent. Unfortunately, that didn't always filter down to local situations. So right. when we talk about slavery in our country, for example, in the United States, despite the, the teaching of the, of the Pope, there were a lot of bishops, a lot of priests, a lot of lay people who were involved in slavery. Hmm. Uh, there were a lot who supported it. And there were those who opposed it. Obviously, in the southern states, there was a lot of support, even mm -hmm. from Catholics, for, slave, to, for slavery. I think you would find in some of these situations, Catholics who were involved, especially priests or religious orders, they would often defend the slaves from unjust treatment or not unjust treatment, but against any kind of harm being done to them. But they didn't necessarily oppose the institution of slavery. Right. I think what marked Catholics, they did recognize that the blacks were, were fully human and therefore baptism and all those things, which not everyone in society believed in. Catholics, mm. The Catholics 
who had slaves believed that they were human. I mean, but and, and that they were called to you know uh, they, they worked at evangelizing blacks, etc. But that doesn't excuse hmm. the fact that they supported slavery as an institution. I think a bishop, Ireland, who was very famous in uh, bishop in the 19th century from South Carolina, well-known, one of the most prominent U.S. bishops, he was supported slavery. It's really, really sad. But, you know, on the again, in church teaching, especially on the universal level with the pope, there was condemnation of slavery. Now, after the Civil War and the emancipation of the slaves, racism still continued. Sure. And I was talking to someone a couple weeks ago who said, you know, we haven't had slavery for, you know, a century and a half. Why? And I said, yeah, it's true, but there's been terrible racism, discrimination. The Jim Crow laws, mm-hmm. you know, which treated blacks as inferiors, mm-hmm. you know, that terrible Supreme Court decision, Plessy versus Ferguson, which um, allowed for segregation, mm-hmm. you know, so that whole idea of separate but equal. Right. And when there was the segregation, of course, opportunities for blacks were, were denied. There were a lot of, um, you know, black schools and white schools, black areas for seating, areas for, for whites and, and areas for blacks, and oftentimes the African-Americans got the short end of the stick. Right. I mean, they, they were not equal. It wasn't equal, really. And so segregation was extremely harmful. It wasn't until the um, famous Supreme Court decision, Brown versus Board of Education, where we had the integration of schools. But it was really up until the 1950s and 60s, until we really had integration as being uh, the law of the land. The, you know, So this is fairly recent when you think about it. That's only 40, 50 years ago. You know, the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964 and then the Voting Rights Act in 1965. By that point, when it came to integration, I think the Catholic Church was was ahead of the rest of society. You see a lot of places where there was integration in Catholic schools Mm -hmm. before it happened in other schools. You had bishops and priests and religious and laity involved in the civil rights movement. So, and some would say, well, why why were Catholics really not on the side of the rights of African Americans at the time of the Civil War and after? I mean, there were some. Uh, it was kind of divided just like the country was between North and South. I mean, there were a lot of Northern Catholics who were against slavery, et cetera, or against the Jim Crow laws, these segregation laws. But also there was a certain friction between immigrants, especially Irish immigrants and African Americans. And some of that was competition for jobs and things like that. So that was kind of sad because in a sense you had two groups who were being marginalized or oppressed and then they in a sense fought each other Hmm. you know so that led so you see racism on the part of 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 catholics even at that time anyhow it's very complex i could go on and on but i think the important thing to realize is some of the effects of this on the african-american community i mean racism is a real poison i mean it has long-term effects I mean, there's obviously there are people still today who who are, um, you know, white supremacists or who have racist sentiments. 
And there's also other kinds of prejudice that perhaps are unconscious or subconscious attitudes towards people of other races. Mm -hmm. And I think we all have to examine our consciences on that. So the advances that we've seen in civil rights, et cetera, there's still big inequities when it comes to things like education, employment, housing, et cetera. You look at unemployment rates for African-Americans or actually Latinos as well. Mm -hmm. You look at the disproportionate numbers who are in some stage of the criminal justice system in jail. You know, we still see the discrimination in employment when you have minorities applying for jobs. So there are a lot of, of, um, a lot of things like that. There was a very important pastoral letter of the Catholic Bishops of the United States on racism back in 1979. Hmm. Someone was asking me what I recommend to read. I think that's a really important uh, pastoral letter of the U.S. bishops. It's called Brothers and Sister to, Sisters to Us. Now, that's you know about 41 years ago. But I think a lot of what's in that letter are uh, still viable today. But we did put out another pastoral letter, as I mentioned before, two years ago, called Open Wide Our Hearts, The Enduring Call to Love. And basically, it's a call to address racism in our hearts and in our communities, that there still is a conversion needed in order to address this evil that still exists in our communities. You know, some have called racism the original sin in, of the United States, hmm. but the legacy of racism we see even today, as I mentioned, economic and social inequality being one of the things. So we need to continue to work for policies uh, that promote equality and, and, um, and removing the institutional barriers that perpetuate this inequality. And the church also needs to confront any, any kind of racism within its own communities. I mean, mm -hmm. even in our parishes. Uh, I think about our African-American Catholics. Um, those of African origin, by the way, make up more than a quarter of the 1.2 billion Catholics in the world. Hmm. About 25% of Catholics in the world, in the church, are of African descent. Now, it's a much smaller percent in the United States but um, and in our diocese. But it's good for us to um, make sure, as people of faith, that we know our African American brothers and sisters, Catholics, and that we support them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we have a Black Catholic Advisory Board here in our diocese. That's a really wonderful group. But then we need to um, make sure that our parishes are welcoming to all uh, ethnic groups and races, that they're involved and invited. We socialize. You know, some people say, Bishop, what can I do to, to fight racism? I said, well, for one thing, just begin in your own life, in your own family. Parents, do you ever talk to your kids about race? Do you go out and, and talk to our African-American brothers and sisters and socialize with them and learn more about the, the culture and the challenges? Uh, I think all of these things break down prejudice. I learned so much when I was a pastor of a parish in inner city Harrisburg, which was predominantly Latino, but probably about a quarter of the parishioners were African-American. Mm -hmm. 
and it was really beautiful. Uh, I learned so much, um, made a lot of friends, but it was really important that everyone felt that St. Francis Parish was their home, that the European Americans, the African Americans, and the Latino Americans, that they all, um, but, but they were in some ways, I noticed when I first got there, there was a lot of separation among the groups. So one of the things was planning activities that we did together, liturgical things as well as social things. And I noticed it took a few years, but as friendships be- began to grow, it was, uh, I mean, it brought so, so much joy to my heart. One thing at liturgies, you know, we had a, a Spanish choir, we had an English choir, and we had a gospel choir. Hmm. And uh, the English choir is more traditional. And um, I remember that each choir would sing their separate music. Uh-huh. And when we would have a big parish celebration, particular feasts and that, you know, the gospel choir would do two songs, the Spanish choir would do two songs, the English <laughs> traditional choir would do a couple songs, and they started getting to know each other. And then the people in the, in the pews would sing according to their own cultural group. Hmm. Well, I start, we started to encourage people to, to join in with the others. Yeah. By the time I left as pastor, it was beautiful because everyone would be singing gospel music. Uh-huh. Everyone would be singing the Spanish music. Everyone would be, sp- be singing the uh, English traditional music. I mean, it, and the choirs themselves would be singing each other's songs. So it was, it was great that, that they had separate choirs for particular masses, but that when we were all together, everyone would sing together. I mean, it took a few years. Till that happened, yeah. But it was beautiful when it did happen. I mean, in a way, that's integration, right? You, right. you almost had like separate but equal masses. Not that people were forced to attend a particular right. mass like they were with schools back in the day, but kind of you had your own tribe. And this is an integration, a multicultural mass celebrating our faith together. And exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there would still be separate Spanish masses sure. because there's the language thing or, or completely gospel masses. And there had to be, you know, equality and using facilities and all that. But what was most beautiful, as you just said, when, when everyone was integrated together, participating in each other's music. Now, that's just one form. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there are deeper things besides uh, music, because music is an expression. But the friendships and the community that developed, especially learning from one another. I know there used to be, there was prejudice against, uh, on the part of some of the Anglos against Hispanics, like, you know, why don't they learn English? We shouldn't mm-hmm. have to cater to the Spanish in their own language. And I mean, I see there's some of that prejudice here in our diocese sure. even now. And they don't realize that, uh, yeah, most Hispanics are struggling to learn English, but people pray in their first language. You know, I lived in Italy seven years. When I would speak to God, I spoke to him usually in English. Um, We should respect each other's culture, each other's language, and and not like put people down. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think the same with African-Americans and you know, beautiful cultural elements in the African-American community that really we can enrich one, one another with our cultures. And always maintaining that, that bond of unity, you know, the unity in diversity that's still needed today. 
Well, one thing I want to mention is the two articles that you suggested people read or the statements uh, from the USCCB. If you just do a Google search, it'll pull it's the first link is the USCCB website and it takes you directly there. So if you search for open wide our hearts or if you search for brothers and sisters to us, either one of those will take you directly to the documents that Bishop was mentioning. Again, open wide our hearts brothers and sisters to us. Uh, Coming up, I want to talk a little bit about the book that you're suggesting our Catholic schools implement into their curriculums, and then also talk about some of the Supreme Court decisions that came out last week. So that's coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, and we've been talking about racism and how we address this as a church. Bishop, you mentioned several different documents. Also, in the online version of Today's Catholic, uh, there was an article about the diocese adopting a book that reflects the reality of racism, and you're suggesting that our schools implement this. Is is it mandatory that they implement this or just a suggestion? Yeah, I highly recommend it. I don't remember if I made it mandatory or if I, you know, I I sent it out so that, um, because I thought, you know, education is so important. And um, this was a really neat story that I think um, will really teach the important lesson to our children. It was really a result kind of stemming from our, our bishop's pastoral letter on racism. I think you have something there that gives you the listeners a little yeah, the explanation. Book, the book's called Everyone Belongs, and it was produced by the USCCB Ad Hoc Committee Against Racism, uh, the Department of Justice, Peace and Human Development, and Loyola Press for the Domestic Church. So it, it seems really good. I haven't actually seen a copy of it yet, but it um, looks like a great resource. I know not only the schools, but also the religious ed programs at the parishes are encouraged to to use this as well. But it uh, looks like this is something definitely I want to pick up for us to have at home for the kids so we can talk about it at home as well. Yeah, yeah. And maybe they'd, you know, because I, I don't know what grades they'd be implementing it and might, that might vary from school to school. But, you know, if our kids missed it and, you know, they're going to be talking about it in second grade next year. Well, I want to talk about it with our third and fourth grader. So, uh, yeah, I think it's good for kids to know about that. And to, you know, I, I know how much I've learned from African-American friends who've shared with me about their experiences of racism and including young people, teenagers or young adult blacks who I've spoken to. And I'll say, I'll ask them, you know, give me, have you ever experienced anything racist in, and I'll ask them in the church or in their neighborhood or in their, uh, in the community and almost everyone has a story to share. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's, you know, um, related to being looked upon with suspicion, uh, especially young black males as, you know, like potential criminals, right. Uh, things like that, walking through a neighborhood and people afraid and things like that, even something more blatant, uh, some will, will share like some kind of a racist remark or, or a inappropriate joke. It's good for our children and our young people to 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 read a story like this, and and they see the injustice um, and the hurt caused. Mm-hmm. Maybe not always intentional, yeah, but still uh, caused. And if people want to check it out, loyalapress.com has a link to, to buy it, but also it has information there. This is for children ages five to twelve, and they're also on the website. There's printable activity sheets 
to accompany the book. So you can go there for kindergarten, grades one through five, free activity sheets that you can just print off and kind of look through those before you read it or after you read it with your kids. Uh, great resource. So not only will our schools be doing it, but hopefully we can implement this in our families as well. But one of the things that when you were talking about the Supreme Court decision that was you know, saying that we should have separate but equal and that that was not a good decision by the Supreme Court, I think it illustrates one of those things that our church may be infallible. The people implementing those infallible teachings may not be infallible, <laughs> obviously are not infallible. We may make mistakes, but the Supreme Court is not always infallible. Right. <laughs> and so we need to be following what the church teaches and not always what our country is teaching. And there are two Supreme Court decisions that came out last week, and I wondered if you wanted to comment on those. Yeah. Well, the Roe v. Wade decision, of course, very famous back sure. in the early uh, early 70s. Uh, obviously, we, don't, we know that was uh, wrong. Mm -hmm. I mean, legalizing abortion uh, across the country. But the most recent one about um, the Supreme Court decision on the legal def definition of sex in civil rights law. We have a prohibition on discrimination in employment in Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. We were talking earlier about the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Very, very important. Well, in that act, discriminating on the basis of sex in unemployment was prohibited. And we've always agreed with that. We don't mm -hmm. discriminate on the basis of sex. But now, with the new Supreme Court decision last week, they've decided to redefine the legal meaning of sex, mm -hmm. kind of like they redefined the legal meaning of marriage, right. which we don't agree with, mm -hmm. okay? Or like they redefined the meaning of when life begins, right. you know? So this is really, you know, this is all against natural law. Mm -hmm. So how did they redefine le the legal meaning of sex in our civil rights law? Now they're saying that our sex, uh, it's not just on the basis of being male or female. It now prohibits discrimination based on sexual orientation and transgender status. Mm -hmm. So, it's a new definition of sex. And of course, what is problematic, this can lead to, to many, many different problems. Uh, first of all, we don't believe in discrimination either on the basis of sexual orientation. But what it means in civil law, sexual orientation also includes behavior. It also includes things like same-sex marriage. So, you couldn't discriminate, for example, an employer would have to even hire people in, in, in same-sex marriages or who had uh, identified as a different gender than their biological sex. This is of great concern for us, especially in the church, in our schools and in our um, and other institutions of the church. We expect that our teachers, for example, are role models and that they live and teach the truths of our Catholic faith, including the truth that marriage is only between one man and one woman, mm -hmm. or the truth that we are male or female as God created us. So we don't even know at this point if 
our religious liberties will be respected. And, and the Supreme Court, uh, the, the, the majority opinion, I think it was a 6-3 decision, 6-3 uh, vote. The one who wrote for the majority, uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch, said that they weren't dealing with the question of, of religious liberty rights. So that's still to be seen. Mm-hmm. You know, will we be sued if we say that we will not hire as a, a teacher someone in our Catholic schools, someone who's in a same-sex marriage? Mm-hmm. You know, if we deny someone a job or terminate someone for that, will we be sued and lose? And that means that we have to hire people who, who aren't living our teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, transgender is even more uh, problematic in a way because we're talking about something very fundamental, and that is that we are created male and female. So if we have a female teacher who claims to be a male, that just wouldn't be acceptable to us to be teaching in our schools. Mm-hmm. So the big question is, will this aspect of Title VII uh, and this new definition of sex, will we be forced or coerced to follow that definition? You know, how it's going to affect faith-based organizations, how it's going to affect churches, Catholic hospitals, Catholic charities, uh, as I said, our schools, you know, we'll have to see because I'm not sure if the religious liberty defense will allow us not to be bound by this definition of sex. Mm-hmm. Of course, the USCCB, along with a number of other religious groups, we filed amicus briefs, friend of the court briefs in the this um, Supreme Court case. And, um, you know, we were on the losing side. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a matter of, of real, it's really a matter of grave concern. Do you have any idea on how this might unfold and how we'll find out what the religious oh. liberties are regarding this? I expect or, it'll, it'll take years. There'll be court case. cases. Yeah. What I expect will happen, what normally happens is you'll have lawsuits and mm-hmm. it'll be in different states and then they'll be appealed. And then what happens is there's contradictory decisions by different circuit court judges, uh-huh. et cetera. So then it winds its way up to the Supreme Court. So uh, that's what I anticipate. That would be normally what happens, unless the Supreme Court could decide to take a case. I mean, they decide whether they're going to take a case. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they could decide to do it earlier, but oftentimes they wait and see how things roll out. Right. Well, the other thing I want to talk about is the DACA decision. But before we do, we'll take a break and people can ask their questions by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You could text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, we'll talk about the other Supreme Court decision from last week. And we'll talk about St. John the Baptist on his feast day. Coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop who's been talking about, we talked about racism, we talked about the Supreme Court decision regarding sex and marital statuses. Uh, 
another decision that came out was about DACA, right. which we've talked about in the past, um, I don't know, maybe a year or so ago when this kind of flared up. What did the Supreme Court yeah. decide on that? Well, in, in some ways, um, it shows how unpolitical the Catholic Church is because <laughs> on what we just talked about, definitely uh, the Democratic Party would have been strongly supportive of the uh, of the Supreme Court decision. Mm-hmm. Uh and uh, we were on the losing side, uh, so most most Republicans, you know, were um, you know agreed with the church on this issue of DACA. It's the reverse, uh-huh. because really the court, and this was a five four decision, ruled that the the Trump administration's effort to or action to rescind the the DACA program, um, the court ruled that that decision was arbitrary and capricious so it it um, they ruled against the efforts by the Trump administration to end DACA mm-hmm. DACA stands for deferred action for childhood arrivals and I think as you probably know this program which began in 2012 by an executive order of President Obama enabled about 700,000 young people who we call dreamers mm-hmm. uh, to work to go to college to get health insurance to get a driver's license uh, not face deportation. These were young people who were brought to the U.S. as children mm-hmm. by their parents, and they didn't have legal documentation. You know, we've been very strong. The, the church has been very strong in supporting these uh, young people. I know many of them uh, here in our own diocese. They're a vital part of our church. And uh, so really, this Supreme Court decision we really welcomed that. Uh, now, basically, the the court ruled that the Trump administration didn't follow proper administrative procedures required to repeal the DACA program. Right. They could come back and follow correct administrative or proper administrative procedures and still eventually repeal mm-hmm. the DACA program. So, in a sense, this is... You know, we're we're happy with the decision, but it doesn't mean it's the end of the story. Uh, what we really need is a path to citizenship for dreamers. Mm-hmm. I mean, these young people, I mean, some of them were like a year old when they came to this country. These, uh, you know, a lot of great young people and that they can't, that, that there's no path to citizenship for them. It really is heartbreaking. I hope that partisanship just gets put to the side and think of this as a human issue. Mm-hmm. The future of these young people, I mean, it's not their fault. They're, you know, um, so I hope, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, but I think we have to go beyond just DACA. We need to have a path to citizenship. Uh, yes, DACA at least prevents them from from being deported and it allows them to go to college and these other things have a driver's license and that but but you know they need the stability of citizenship Mm -hmm. all right well feel free to go to redeemerradio.com slash ask bishop to check out past episodes of the show also to ask your question for bishop you can text the holy cross college text line at 260-436-9598 and coming up, Bishop will talk a little bit about St. John the Baptist on his feast day, the solemnity of his nativity, right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.
Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rose. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. And as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, this is the solemnity of the nativity of St. John the Baptist, one of his two feast days. This one celebrating his birth on earth, uh, the other celebrating his birth into heaven, if you will. Why does he have two feast days? Why is he one of the special? Yeah, ones? I think because of his great importance in the uh, history of the church, the history of salvation, he really surpasses all the prophets. He was the immediate forerunner of the Messiah, mm-hmm. of Jesus. Uh, so he said that no one born of woman greater than John the Baptist. So really only the Blessed Virgin Mary and John the Baptist, they're the only two saints that whose birthdays we celebrate uh-huh. on the church calendar. So today, uh, the birth of John the Baptist, his nativity, um, of course, we all know he was conceived by his mother Elizabeth as the result of a, a special intervention by God because Zechariah and Elizabeth were both elderly. Mm-hmm. They were advanced in years, according to the gospel, and Elizabeth was sterile. So. God answered their prayers. They had been praying for many years for a child. And um, of course, remember at the Annunciation, Elizabeth conceiving John was announced uh, to Mary as well Mm -hmm. at the end of um, the Annunciation by the angel Gabriel. And remember, the angel said, for nothing is impossible with God. Gabriel said, your kinswoman, Elizabeth, has conceived and will bear a son. And then, of course, Mary went to visit Elizabeth. We read the account of John's birth in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 1. If you recall that, that story, the neighbors and relatives of Zechariah and Elizabeth were calling to name the baby Zechariah after his father. Right. And both Zechariah and Elizabeth said no he will be called John Uh uh, because that's the name that the angel Gabriel told Zechariah he was to name his son. And the Hebrew name John means, for John, means God has shown favor. God has shown favor. God is benevolent. Very appropriate name because God has shown his favor to Elizabeth and Zechariah and would show favor to God's people Mm -hmm. through John the Baptist. Now, after that, after insisting that his son be named John, Zechariah was able to speak again. Remember, he was struck mute because he was pretty skeptical Uh when the angel Gabriel gave him the message that Elizabeth was going to bear a son. Seems reasonable that he was skeptical, but yeah, I know everyone, I guess if everyone angel has comes. sympathy for Zechariah uh, in that. Uh, but he was questioning God, yeah. and he, it wasn't like the faith of Mary who obeyed right away. Mm. The first thing after he was able to speak, after his speech was restored, what's the first thing he did? He praised God. Right, it's really beautiful, and he believed that John would grow up to fulfill what Gabriel had said that he would be great in the sight of the Lord. Remember, that's what Zechariah heard from from Gabriel, that his son would be great in the sight of the Lord, that he would go before the Lord to prepare his way, that he would go forth in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's what uh, the angel told Zechariah. So by this point, Zechariah knew and believed. And really, when you think, what an amazing vocation John had Hmm. to prepare the way of the Lord. 
he proclaimed that baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Um, you know, I always hold up John the Baptist as an example for our priests and seminarians, but I would also say, because we're to prepare the way of the Lord mm, in right. our people's lives, you know, I always think he's a good model. Mm-hmm. And also, when John the Baptist said about Jesus, he must, I must decrease and he must increase. Mm-hmm. So his humility. Right. But I think he's a model for, for all of us um, of fidelity to God and fidelity to God's law. And it was that fidelity that led to his martyrdom that we will celebrate on August 29th. Mm-hmm. Uh, he died for the sake of the truth when he denounced the adultery of King Herod and Herodias. This commitment to truth. Mm-hmm. You know, we need that today. Pope Francis has said that and, and, and used John the Baptist as an example that we shouldn't be afraid to go against the current. And John the Baptist went against the current. So to be brave in following the path of the gospel, to go against the tide when it's necessary. I also think of John the Baptist as a model of prayer because he spent all that time in the desert. He was like Elijah. Remember, Elijah went out and withdrew to the desert. So did John the Baptist. Why did they go to the desert? To listen more attentively to the word of God. They went to the desert to pray. And that really was a thread that guided John the Baptist throughout his life. He spent years in the desert in contact with God. We need desert spaces in our life to be in contact with God. We all need some silence and solitude in our busy lives to listen to God, to allow God's word to penetrate our minds and hearts, to allow Jesus to enter. And then we're better able to live our faith and to proclaim and bear witness. And I think we see that in John the Baptist. Mm It was only after that time in the desert that he went out preaching the baptism of repentance. And he did so with boldness, right. with courage. Another thing is the humility I talked about. There's one place where he says to the people, the people some of the people were thinking he was the Messiah. Mm-hmm. He said, what you suppose me to be, I am not. Behold, one is coming after me. I am not worthy to unfasten the sandals of his feet. So even though he had this really important mission, it didn't go to his head. He didn't let people think he was the Messiah. He told them that he wasn't, that he wasn't even worthy to unfasten the sandals of his feet. Because he knew who he was. He was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He wasn't... uh, he wasn't the word. Uh-huh. He was the voice. So what Jesus that, was the word. What does that mean that he, we hear that a lot, the voice crying out in the wilderness. What, what does that represent? What was the wilderness and what was he? The desert. Out? Okay. Because that's where he preached uh-huh. uh, along, you know, near the Jordan River that goes through the Judean desert. Uh, so he was out in the desert. So it's People, literal. Yeah, is it, it okay. is really. Yeah. I think there's an Old Testament. I think it's, um, I mean, that's a prophecy uh, from Isaiah. Oh. Uh, as well. So, okay. yeah, that there would be one voice crying out in the wilderness. I don't know the exact cite, uh, citation. The other thing I think that always is, is kind of a neat thing about him is the story of him leaping in the womb. Oh, and this yeah. idea, you talk about him preparing the way of 
Christ and him being this voice crying out of the wilderness that he was announcing that this is, this is something special before he was even born. Like this was his destiny. Like this is what he was created to do. And, and even before his birth, he was doing it. Right. It's amazing. Love for joy. Yeah. And, you know, we, uh, you know, I love the fact that that's an allusion to the same Hebrew words that are in, uh, in the Old Testament with David leaping in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant huh. for joy. Yeah. Um, and, of course, Mary's the new Ark of the Covenant. So right. she arrives carrying Jesus in her womb. And as the Ark of the Covenant entered Jerusalem carrying the Ten Commandments, we have David leaping for joy. That's so cool. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bishop, for another great episode. I've always learned so much from these. Can we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. If you're listening to this episode as a podcast, Check out the show notes for links to the pastoral letters and book Bishop recommended as additional resources on racism. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.